politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house on Thursday powering towards the end of the week. It's been a long, productive week here, but we are just getting started. Um, If you haven't heard yesterday's show, that's Wednesday's show, you really need to listen again. We had a terrific, brave, uh, conservative county commissioner from Douglas County, Colorado. And I noted at the time that our only hope in fighting back against this voodoo, superstitious, Middle Ages type of response to the virus is to fight back at a county level. You can't count on national Republicans or state Republicans, that's for sure. Uh, You got Marco Rubio out there saying stupid things about masks now. You got every Republican governor talking about it, the Mississippi governor, the Alabama governor. Again, you look at their statements and they sound as panicked and as illogical as the Democrats. This is the issue of our time. This is affecting more people than you could imagine. And the Republicans are not offering anything. There's a lack of belief in God. There's a lack of belief in science, and the two actually work together. The more you understand this, the more you understand viruses, respiratory viruses, that they're extremely contagious no matter what you do. They're extremely common. And their threat is very heterogeneous, very much targeted towards specific people. Most people God has equipped with the ability to deal with it, like the flu. And in fact, in most people, it's it's less to, to far less symptomatic than the flu. There is a certain percentage of the population that's more vulnerable than the flu. But what we are doing is not one or two or three degrees more Um, paralysis than we do in flu season, we are doing 1,000, 10,000 degrees more. And that's what just doesn't make any sense. And as I've been noting, not only does that, you know, just just, uh, blow everything out of proportion, shut everything down, not only is it disproportionate in terms of the response and the collateral damage, but the panic winds up killing more people. I want to talk about the good news today. I want to talk about some good news a little bit and then really just go around round robin, tie up some loose ends about the border, about different trends we're seeing, different observations that you that you probably didn't hear about. But I think it's important to note first that the panic itself is the problem. If you treat a respiratory virus that likely affected I think about 45 million people so far, and I think we'll probably need to get to about 60 million or so. On some level, it gets a little, you know, semantics here. How many kind of had it asymptomatically, barely had it, don't have antibodies, but have T-cells. We'll talk about that in a couple minutes. But the problem here is that if they're treating a broadly, you know, transmissible disease that's broadly not deadly like a rare and deadly disease and then they're multiplying by everyone oh my gosh there's another covid case and and the 
obsessive testing and the disproportionate results. So then everyone's scared. All the healthcare workers are out. Because you look at the hospital situation right now, the only problem we really have is, is, is hospital staff. And look, you know, people that are vulnerable and older or who are medical professionals, you'll want to keep away. But other people, I mean, it is what it is. But instead, what we're doing is there's such panic and fear. And again, how many people died in places like New York? And hopefully we don't repeat that. Because they were needlessly put on ventilators. Because they were choking on their saliva in the ventilators. But you didn't have anyone there to alert anyone. Because no one could be with them. People died of lack of hydration. There's a lot of horror stories. You can't treat this like that. That's the problem. If we didn't do mass testing and just someone who really was getting very sick, we, we hospitalized them, it would be more manageable. But what we're doing is we're basically testing everyone, testing everyone a million times. The PCR tests have false positives. They pick up so many things. They pick up people even after six weeks. They have no symptoms. And they're thrown in the same pile as everyone else. You can't do that in a disease that is not just like the flu where pretty much everyone gets pretty sick, pretty sick, but then, you know, rare number get severely sick and die. Here, among those that don't get severely sick and die, most of them are actually milder than the flu. That's the, that's the point here. You look at, I'm, I'm going to dig more into the numbers of the meatpacking plants and the prisons. But they're perfect examples where the conditions are very conducive to the virus thriving in large viral loads and transmitting very quickly. And it turns out a tiny percentage died. And, and, and it's always the people with the diabetes and whatever. You know, in meatpacking plants, it looks like the CFR is only 0.34, which would mean the IFR because those are the like the, you know it's like a hundred deaths to thirty thousand confirmed cases, but remember, even though we are test bombing everyone now, we're not testing every last person. Plus, we did that late in the game, so without antibody tests, we have no idea how many people had it before, and most of them were almost all asymptomatic. See, these prisons and meatpacking plants are perfect microcosms of what the broader universe is, but we just can't see it and we don't notice it. Which is that if you allow it to spread everywhere, which is kind of what these Petri dishes are, you'll have anywhere from 20 to 40% who will get it in some form. Almost all are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. You include the mildly symptomatic, it will always get you into the 90s if not 99%. Very few hospitalizations, fewer deaths. Now, if you want to say, Daniel, well, could we mitigate that? Beyond coming up with better treatments, which we are doing, that's not in our hands. God gave us, you know, and you shall heal, the ability to heal. And he has given us that acumen. But the ability to stop this to stop a respiratory virus from at least hitting, that has never happened. And, and you know, God has his ways of uh, attacking you.
when he wants to. And we're, we're noticing that. There's stories of places that were totally locked down. They still wound up getting it. All the people with the PPE still get it. But the good news is, for most people, this works out. God created the offense of viruses for whatever reason to challenge us in society. But he created a robust defense. Now, for the same reason why there are individuals that are created with problems, why God does that, it's a deep philosophical question that we're not going to get all the answers to in this world. But generally speaking, you see his handiwork. For most people, it works out. And that's the first thing I wanted to get to today, the good news. We mentioned it before. There's about four or five different T-cell studies that show that even people that don't have antibodies or they lose the antibodies, there's long-term T-cell immunity. These are inherent white blood cells that are part of the immune system that ward off infection. You have T-cells that are CD8+, plus, that are killer cells that seem to completely eradicate CD4 plus cells that are um, helper cells that ward off the symptoms, but maybe you 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 know could still test positive like certain other viruses, and that seems to be working for most people, and it's truly remarkable. So there's been a number of these studies. One of them came out from Singapore, very good study, in May as a preprint. Yesterday, it was it, it achieved peer review stat- status and it was published in Nature magazine. Very important article. See, one of the things they're doing, they, they know that this is going to plateau within about a few weeks. They know what we're saying. We were hoping it would go away without any degree of having to hit that 15, 20% marker. But no. And by the way, it seems remarkably seasonal and latitude-wise. You look at it, it's, it's, it's the south. It was the north, then it went to the south. You know, we were so used to treating America like one country, so we went through this degree of trauma and panic porn in all 50 states in March and April, even though half the country didn't really get it. So now they're getting it. They're not. They're very unlikely to get what New York got, but they're going to get what the kind of median type of place got. Maybe like my home state of Maryland. Right until now, it's been remarkable given their, you know, their the age of the state in Florida how per capita was like 10 times better than Maryland. Forget about New York City. So likely they'll they'll probably get what Maryland got. Again, I don't think what New York City got, but but some other northeastern states got. They'll get the full-blown thing. Everyone's going to get it to some degree, maybe except for some real remote places, maybe Wyoming and Alaska and places like that won't won't really get it. The jury is still out on that. But they're getting it. But we expended all our panic porn on, you know, so it's almost like everyone feels bad for them because it's almost like they're getting it twice, but not really. Texas and, and Arizona really look like they're leveling off because Mexico is leveling off, as we're going to talk about. It's going to take another few weeks to, you know, really just get out all the deaths. But overall, you take out the nursing homes. From the equation. And you're going to find mainly you take them. If you take the nursing nursing homes out. 
and you find the true denominator of the number of people who get this, the fatality rate is about 0.1. Okay? And it's almost all... You now, you add in nursing homes, it's going to be more like 0.3. But almost all of those are known people that we could better shield and focus on and not treat everyone the same like we would in a flu season. And God knows with school children, it's just utterly insane. Did you know that not a single child has died in a state of like, what, 44 million in California? California, not a single child has died, and they're shutting schools in September. Boggles the mind. According to CDC, this is not, I don't have California, but nationwide, they believe, it's not conclusive, but they believe that 600 children died in the 2018 flu season. But what the media doesn't tell you can't hurt you. But anyway, the good news is that once a place gets it, they're going to get, you know, Israel, Australia, they probably had 1%, maybe 2% seroprevalence. So it makes sense that they locked down, so now now they're going to get it. Now they're going to lock down again. It's stupid. They're going to drag it out. There's no reason for that. There's no reason for that whatsoever. But the good news is that gradually you look at, you know, I've seen some reports, seroprevalence in some of these states that didn't have it much is inching up to 11, 12%. And that's good. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Very few deaths relative to the number of people. So what they're trying to do is push this panic porn. A lot of people ask me about this, and I know uh, Dr. Bostom talked about it. He's written some articles for me, but I wanted to go in depth about T-cells. What they're trying to say is, aha, the antibodies are only going to last for a few months, maybe a few years in some people, and you're going to get it again. Now, the reason why they need to say that is because, well, what happens when we reach that saturation level How do they keep the panic porn going? Well, that's the perfect way to do it. You're going to get it again and again until we get a vaccine. And then, of course, the vaccine, even if they get one, won't be foolproof, kind of like the flu. You know, 50% of those who died in California in the 2018 flu season, um, according to their health department surveillance surveillance report, uh, Dr. Atlas just sent this to me, 50% had the flu flu vaccine, by the way. So, um, you know... It's certainly not not foolproof. It's very hard to get that for a respiratory virus. Just we haven't done that in our history. And that's that's the point. I mean, something that's common but broadly not deadly for most people. It's it's like if I tell you I'm going to stop the cold. Now, again, with the caveat that there's an element of this that certainly is a lot more dangerous for a particular group of people than, than a cold or even a flu. And I'm not, I, I've never said otherwise. But... You know, the, the the broader point is that it works kind of like it. You know, very like, like a pandemic flu. It's very much similar to a pandemic flu. 1957, 1968, and really 2018 that people forgot about, where according to some estimates, as many as 80,000 did die. So... That's the thing. It works pretty pretty similar to it. You're not going to get around it. But here's the good news. Per the Singapore study, 
they found that these T cells last for a long time. 17 years after SARS-1, they found blood samples. They got blood samples of SARS patients. You had a lot more SARS people in Asia than America. You didn't have too many in America in 2003. So this is SARS-1. What we have is SARS-2. Never forget that. SARS-CoV-2 is the name. We call it COVID-19. Everyone's into that name. But it's it's SARS 2.0. I'm not saying it's like SARS in all ways, and it's clearly not. It's clearly much more transmissible, but per, but but therefore less deadly. But again, it's not. It's going to share a lot of characteristics. You're not going to have every doggone thing about this virus be different from every other coronavirus or every other respiratory virus. And what they found was every one of those individuals, there were 23 of them, they still had their T-cells that were induced to ward off SARS-1 infections, still had them intact 17 years later. And I I just want to note just the, the beauty of the human immune system that God created The body doesn't need to have active antibodies for every doggone cold that it comes across. It's kind of like a computer, you know, efficiently storing information. It doesn't need to do that. The T-cells remember the recipe. They they have memory how to word it off. So it doesn't need the, 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 the antibodies. So... Basically, there's three steps to this study. Very, very important study. Clinically, clinically done in a lab. This is a real study, not some, some, some sort of BS estimate. Where they took these um, T-cells that were induced by the original SARS pathogen. So number one is they found them. So that in itself is terrific news. That you see when you're infected with a coronavirus, the T-cells are always there, even if the um, antibodies aren't there. Okay? Then they said, okay, now we're going to take 36 blood samples from people that had SARS-CoV-2 now and see if they do something similar. And they studied them, and they said, wow, they produced similar T-cells that are specific to SARS-CoV-2, just like in 2003, the people who recovered from SARS-1 produced those T-cells. Great news. So now we have what we, they confirmed what we thought we knew is that this does produce the T-cells that will be there. And presumably, if they lasted this long for SARS-1, you can't prove yet that SARS-2 will be the same, but you know there, there's no reason to believe that they should be any weaker or short-lived than the T-cell memory from SARS-1. So, that's the beauty of it. Now again, it doesn't prove also that they're necessarily fully immune, but what it showed in the lab is that when you attack it, they would simulate it and they would attack it with the virus, it would still work. It would the, the, These T-cells worked. Now, to be clear, and, and, and this is going to be important going, going forward, because we're going to talk retrospectively 
in a minute the next step, and that's going to prove going forward, it doesn't mean that if you swab them in the future, they, they could possibly test positive. But what it does mean is that they're going to ward it off. Because again, a lot of them, some of them they found T, T, what's called CD8 cells, which are the killer cells. Some they only found CD4, which are the helper cells. But that's enough. As, as Dr. Bostom said, immunity is, is a loaded term. What we need is that you don't have a lot of people getting seriously ill. That's what it means to achieve the de facto immunity. Now, here's the next step. Now you might say, okay, Daniel, fine. You've proved to me that um, SARS-CoV-2, if you got it, you don't have to worry about getting seriously ill, certainly. You're fine. Okay, that, that, that's not true. But it's, but it's more than that. They, they used the T-cells from SARS-CoV-1 and interacted them with the virus of COVID-19. And they found they were effective. So they found a cross-immunity. Well, Daniel, okay, you know, not many people had SARS-1, but you're right. If you have SARS-1, you don't have to worry about even getting SARS-2 the first time around. Well, they said, wait a minute. If SARS-1 produced T-cells that had cross-immunity to SARS-2, what about the other four coronaviruses that are common colds? OC43, HKU1, NL63, and 229E. That, according to most studies, they account for 15 to 30% of colds on a given year. Because very few people had SARS, but how many people in the world had, you know, at some point enough buildup to these four coronaviruses over their lifetime to have at least enough relatively recent within the last 20, 30 years of T cells to ward off symptoms to at least be asymptomatic, if not be fully immune? Well, you know what they did? They took blood samples of people that they knew didn't have SARS. And also that the blood samples predated the existence of COVID-19. So they knew they didn't have either one. And they said, wait a minute. What if we randomly sampled 37 blood donors that we knew didn't have them? How many of those people might have T-cells that work against COVID-19? Okay. Because their theory was, wait a minute. A lot of people probably get these colds. They found that 19 of the 37, so it's a tick over 50%, 50% had those reactive T-cells that worked when they exposed them to the virus. 50%. Okay? This study is revolutionary because it really answers a lot of questions. It answers a lot of questions. You're not seeing anywhere where 70-80% of people need to get sick with it until it burns out. A lot of places you only see seroprevalence of 15-20%. 
okay? So this has several consequences. One is in terms of the deadliness, the, the infection fatality rate. If we are seeing in so many of these studies, okay, where 50%, by the way, there was another random, there was a similar study of La Jolla Institute of Immunology in California where they showed such cross-reactive responses in 40 to 60% of blood donor samples. So it kind of jived very well with the Singapore study. That was the other one. I'm not sure if that one has been peer-reviewed yet. This, this is the first one I know that has been peer-reviewed. Not much has changed through the process. It was, it was a good study. What that means is that most people... That, 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 so, so a couple things. First of all, who's to say that even antibody tests are picking up the full universe of who was exposed to it? See, we already know, first of all, we already know that according to some studies, 40% of asymptomatic people lose their antibodies very quickly after a few months. So that's first of all, we know like if you test them too late, it could be there were asymptomatic people that you never picked up. Then there could be a whole group of people that did get exposed to it, never produced antibodies because the T cells were enough. So that's first of all, that means that likely a lot more people already had it, which we've always suggested, because our question was, how could this have likely been going on since December, but not more people would have had it? The answer is they did, but they were asymptomatic because the T-cells warded it off. Had we had PCR testing in, in January, we would have found more people like we're doing now and creating panic, but we didn't have it. So we didn't know we, well, what you don't know can't hurt you. So just in terms of statistics, it means more people had it. For sure more people had it. A study out of Germany detected cross-reactive SARS-CoV-2 T-cell, um, T-cells in 81% of unexposed individuals. So they had an 81% number. Could it be that Germany, for whatever reason has a lot of built-up T-cells from, from other coronaviruses. I don't know why that would be, but it would explain why Germany is the largest country in Europe, yet had an amazing result. Very few countries did. You know, um, the countries that did were, were, were tiny countries that don't have a lot of international travel. So this is very important. A study in Sweden found out of 200 blood donors, found twice as many samples with T-cells as samples with anti antibodies. See, there's no way to do this. It's very expensive. It's these very, you know, specialized labs. There's, there's no, they don't have this available commercially. But if you would do, so this PCR testing, then this antibody testing, if you would do T-cell testing, they actually found twice as many had, so let's say 15% of the population had antibodies but 30% had T-cells. So again, that means we're much farther along. And what that means is that it makes sense now 
only about 20% have to really get it. That, that's what makes sense. The rest have inherent cross-partial immunity, partial cross-immunity from other coronaviruses. And this is why you don't see 100% get sick. Often it stops in the prisons and the ships and the meatpacking plants at 20-25%. Sometimes it, it could go to 40-50-60% in rare places. You could have antibodies, but almost all of them were asymptomatic. So that's also a function of the T-cells. Because like I said, it's partial immunity. It answers so many things. It, it likely answers what, what, what went on in um, Asia. Why Asia is so much better off. Because they likely almost all have gotten coronaviruses. So they have that partial immunity. For people, you know, the rare people that are really compromised, it doesn't work for them anymore. So they get seriously ill or sick or, or die, but there's very, there's very few people in Asia. But I would suspect that really 100% of people have gotten, gotten these coronaviruses. Some suggest, it's not been proven yet, but this might explain children as well. The children, you know, young children always get these colds. So, you know, I mean, like anything else, it does wane over time. It doesn't wane nearly as quickly as the antibodies. We see it lasted so far 17 years in these um, SARS patients. But, you know, the older you get, likely the farther you are from, you know, maybe that T-cell immunity weakens. Whereas as a kid, you recently had a lot of exposure to these you know, four common coronavirus colds. So it's stronger. I mean, I happen to think there is likely something a little bit more enduring than that going on in children's immune systems because you're finding even newborn babies. They've tested them and they found them. And you can't tell me they got a coronavirus right beforehand. And I mean, they're very symptomatic. So there's, you know, but, but it might have something to do with it. But, but this is very solid science at this point. So this demonstrates a lot of things. So that's the good news. It's amazing the world that God creates. And it's also an important lesson. Why this sterilization of humanity and the lockdowns are going to harm us. God doesn't mean us to assume zero risk. Because if you go like a nut and you panic and you try try to strive for zero deaths when God deals you with a challenge... You're going to create a human catastrophe that changes God's order of things, and you're going to make things worse. Because now you're not going to have that cross immunity. Now you're going to be, I mean, I I predict for years to come, we're going to have all these problems now. And they're going to all go crazy about it, not realize that it was our, our overreaction, treating the healthy like the sick, that basically turned everyone's immune system into the sick immune system. It's amazing the way the thing works. God gradually builds you up. Certain people, there's the angel of death. That's the way you die. A lot of dying of old age is flu and pneumonia in a given year. It really is. Some people do die younger of it. That's their time to go. But the point is, if, if you'd have something as, in, as deadly as Ebola being as infectious as it, which is the way they're kind of treating this virus, the world would be gone. But God doesn't do that. So God gradually builds you up with lower level things that are more common. And what's amazing is they kind of work for the 
you know, stronger things with the exception of certain people that God either wants to give them a challenge or it's their time to go. It's just amazing. The more you study this, the more you see that on the one hand, you really can't avoid respiratory viruses. But on the other hand, generally speaking, God has given us the tools to deal with it. So this is a truly an amazing, amazing study that again, that coronaviruses produce T cells that keep you immune to certainly to symptoms long-term. Number two, that they, um, they work from one to another. It's confirmed that if you had one coronavirus, like, like SARS-1, it works to SARS-2. And number three, they've confirmed that a random sampling of just the general population controlled for the fact that you know in those samples that they didn't have SARS-1 or SARS-2, 50% had immunity. From what? Well, the, the strong evidence is cross-immunity from those four coronavirus colds. That's an astounding point. Again, this has long been the theory of John Ioannidis, um, Professor Gupta at Oxford, and of course, Michael Levitt. But we're seeing more and more this is proven to be true. Again, what you're seeing in the southern states, what you're seeing in some other countries, they, they, a lot of them had 1-2% seroprevalence. So yeah, I mean, it's going to have to go farther than that. So that's with that. The other good news is the border. See, once you know the main source of the, of the worst parts, the only parts that we're having a New York dynamic really, is in the border counties, like Hidalgo County. Okay, Hidalgo County, Texas. They've, they've been having over 30 deaths a day. They've had like over 200 deaths so far. That is astounding for a county of relatively low population density. They are having more deaths, much more deaths there, than in Harris County, which is Houston, which is five times more dense and three times more populous. Yesterday, I presented an article. It's my sixth in a series on the border and coronavirus showing incontrovertible, incontrovertible evidence that it came from the border. It's truly, truly remarkable. First, I want you to note, I have a chart with a big donut hole, a big gap. What do I mean by that? Texas had their reopening on May 1st. When would you expect to see the deaths if, it, if, if the reopening caused it? Right around May 20-something through mid-June. Well, from mid-June to mid, from mid-May to mid-June, there were zero deaths. They had very few deaths before that, but they had some. Mid-May to mid-June, nothing. It wasn't until way later, June 24th, that it took off, and most of the deaths have been since then. What gives? Well, because we are getting Mexico's curve. Again, to be fair, there's a certain element that the closer you get to Mexico is nothing to do with Mexico. It's just the latitude they're getting it later. That is true. But you're finding it much more severe in the border counties than anywhere else. And it defies all population density. Like, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Yuma County, which had all the cases from Mexico, 
okay? Yuma County. It is 35 people per square mile, 200,000 people in the, in the, in the county. So it's, it's a large geographical area for small county, small number of people. They have 159 deaths. I've, I'm, I'm going to give you homework. Find me any other county in the country per capita that has 35 people per square mile or lower that has anywhere near 159 deaths. That's unbelievable for a county like that. It is truly unbelievable. Like, for comparison, I just took Dutchess County. Dutchess County, New York, has about 100,000 people more than Yuma County. And it is 11 times denser. So Dutchess County, New York, it's it's like in the Hudson River Valley, Poughkeepsie. It's, it's outside. It's upstate. But it's not like, you know, the Adirondack Mountains. It's not like Buffalo. It's it's still within the orbit of New York City where they were getting a lot of a lot more deaths in some of those upstate counties that were within the New York City metro or close enough to the metro than you had in other parts of the country for sure. You saw the spillover Westchester, Rockland, Orange, whatever, a couple other counties there. So I looked at Duchess, and what was phenomenal is they actually had fewer deaths. So this is the New York epicenter, and they had fewer deaths, 11 times greater population density. And again, we we have not seen the New York dynamic almost anywhere else. And yet the border counties are overshooting that. They're not overshooting Queens and Brooklyn, although you do have to adjust. The truth be told, if you would adjust per capita and population density, it probably is. And the answer is because it's not natural. Because we're getting the drain of the sickest people coming from Mexico, as well as the community spread from all the cross-border travel that occurred there. But I just wanted to share with you, in the remaining time, the amazing data numbers and timing trends of what we're seeing. So isn't it fascinating that the worst counties are at the border, but also the timing? So California and Arizona started earlier. Okay, we never heard a word about the RGV, but in in May already, there were Wall Street Journal, Reuters articles, Kaiser Health News, New York Times, Washington Post, local news reports on how you know you had the transfers. They were coming over very sick, even unconscious from Mexico. You had all the cases in Imperial County, California. You had the cases in Yuma, Texas, in Yuma, Arizona. You heard nothing in Texas. The reason is because the virus didn't come to that part of Mexico yet. It went west to east. It started in Baja, California, really in, in late April, May. That's why you saw late May, you know, really the surge in California and Yuma. And Sonora was a little later, that's Yuma. Then it went, it wasn't until the beginning of June that it went to Tamaulipas, which is under Texas, okay? And again, what is the case to fatality Incubation period, about three weeks. Three weeks later is when we saw the deaths in the RGV. The good news is it's it's leveled off already in the western part of Mexico, which is why it's leveled off in terms of cases in California and Arizona. And it, it's at least peaked in Tamaulipas. So hopefully, again, that's the good news. The, the bad news is why the heck are we responsible for Mexico? But... There you go. But I want to read to you. I, I, th- this is phenomenal. I peered into, peeked into the border apprehension numbers from CBP. 
and you literally see the timing by sector in the numbers. So what happened was we had a shutoff of illegal immigration where we said, finally, as we should have always, we're going to turn you back. We're not taking we're not doing this asylum business. We're turning you back. So what happened As always people get deterred and they stop coming. So in March and April, the numbers plummeted. Okay. Then in May, they started to inch up, but only in certain places. Okay. In May, in May, border apprehensions rose in San Diego and El Centro sectors. Okay. San Diego is the, that's like Tijuana, San Diego, Imperial Beach. And then El Centro is like the more sparsely part of eastern, southeastern California. They increased in May by 46 and 49% respectively, the border apprehensions over April. And that's exactly when you saw it hit. Okay. Yuma increased a whopping 150%. Now, the raw numbers are lower in Yuma. It was only like one from like 222 people to like 780 or something, as opposed to like, you know, 3,000 to 4,000, some of the other sectors. But so, so the percentage increase was huge. In June, the rate leveled off to slow down to 30% increase in Yuma. And again, that's what you saw. It leveled off. The RGV was the exact opposite. The RGV always has the most traffic from illegal aliens. Again, that's Eastern Texas. That's at um, Hidalgo, Cameron, and uh, Star Counties. They increased by just 9% from April to May. Then they increased by 47% from May to June. And that's more severe than the other counties because the raw numbers are much larger. Okay? The timing is remarkable. I mean, you could convict someone on this degree of circumstantial evidence. It's remarkable. And almost all of them were single adults, not children, because children don't really get sick from it. Now, why would single adults automatically start coming? Even when we were, had liberal policies, the single adults, we, we, we weren't giving them amnesty and asylum. It was the whole family unit business and the single children. And even then, we were turning them back now. So why would single adults think they could somehow get away with it? Why weren't they dissuaded? My theory is because they were fleeing the virus. They weren't coming for the typical you know, jobs or welfare or family reunification or whatever. They wanted to move to America. They were coming because they were sick. And that explains why they came in crazy numbers from the parts of Mexico that were peaking in May in May and the parts of Mexico that were peaking in June. They came in June. And therefore, the parts of America that are above the parts of Mexico that peaked in May, they peaked in May. And the parts of America that were above the parts in Texas, in, in Mexico, that peaked in June, guess what? They peaked, they, it, it, you know, surged in June and then now into July. It's going to take a while. It's truly remarkable. Yes, it is true that Latinos, just from a racial genetic standpoint, appear to be more vulnerable. They get it more and certainly die more. It's true of blacks as well. That is true. But it still doesn't explain it. It's not just the inherent Americans of Latino descent. It has to be cross-border migration. Because again, as I noted, New Mexico, Doña Ana County. It's 70% Hispanic, okay? It's on the border in New Mexico. 
Except as I noted, there's no border crossings because it's a desert there. There's nothing there. No one comes there. Dona Ana County is roughly the size of Yuma. Same size. It's even a little bit more Hispanic than Yuma. Yet, whereas Yuma had 159 deaths, they had just 11. Again, you could convict someone on this degree of evidence. We were locked down. We were told you, you couldn't, we, we can't flood the hospitals. Yet we brought people over directly to flood the hospitals and we didn't stop Americans from traveling to Mexico or forcing a mandatory quarantine like we did from state to state within America. Because everything that has to do with Mexico is sacred. In our racial pyramid of unequal protection under the law. Truly disgusting. But on the other hand, at least we know the source of this. Florida is not on the border. But again, in Florida also, some of that maybe is genetic. In Florida, um, first of all, per capita, there's no county that's like Hidalgo. Hidalgo is like New York City. I mean, that, but again, that's not natural. They're getting all the sickest people from Mexico. Imagine if Canada would be on New York City's border and, and people from New York City were scared of the hospitals, they flocked to Canada. That, that's the equivalent of what's happening there. Per capita, it's, it's, it's plateauing. They're getting over 100 deaths a day, but it's a very large state. Statewide, it's not a county. In Hidalgo, you're getting 35 deaths a day in, 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 a, in a rural county. But again, in, in, in Florida, it does appear that it could very well be more than half of them are Hispanic. So that is something interesting to take a look at. But the bottom line is we need context. We need perspective. Sweden didn't panic. Sweden didn't panic. They powered through it. They did prudent measures. They avoided large gatherings. They didn't have them. And by the way, that's one other thing. While I do think this is natural with latitude and seasonality, I do think that the protests accelerated it in all the places that didn't have that de facto brick wall. Okay, it did, it did exacerbate it. It didn't have to happen this quickly. It didn't have to, you know, it could have been more gradual. Didn't have to happen this way. Sweden, they avoided that. They avoided all of the mayhem and deaths. The tens of thousands of people that died from other care. God knows the suicides, the drugs, the mental health problems, the economic ruin. And guess what? They're not going to have a second wave. Because they didn't play games. See, a lot of people made the mistake of comparing them. Okay, Daniel, I understand they're better than the... Bigger countries, but shouldn't they be compared to the other Nordic countries, which seem to have a better result? So there's a couple of things with that. First of all, um, Sweden has an insanely liberal way of coding deaths. So you have to look at all-cause all excess deaths. And if you do, you'll actually find they actually did have a better result than Denmark, roughly the same as Finland. Only Norway was better. Because a lot of those were BS deaths. Then also you have to adjust for the demographics. Sweden has so many more immigrants. And it was reported in Sweden that it was disproportionate among that population. Again, for whatever reason, 
um, non-whites seem to be so much more vulnerable. I have not seen data yet comparing a white population in Sweden to the other Nordic countries, but that will give you even more parity. And then finally, the remainder of it is, what are the other countries going to see in the coming months? Come back to me when this is all over, and I doubt any of them will be better than Sweden. Sweden followed, you know, we always called it ironically a godless country. But ironically, they followed the ways of the Bible. The understanding that a plague more than anything else comes directly from God. Your ability as humans to block that is extremely limited. Like any other thing in medicine, God does give us the wherewithal increasingly through technologies to treat it better. But beyond that, you got to power through it. And if you panic like a nutcase, I so badly don't want to hit the right guardrail on the highway, so I'm going to dramatically swing my wheel to the left and crash and get everyone in the car killed. That's what we did. Fear begets fear, panic begets panic, and it exacerbates death. That is the ultimate lesson here. We need to start reporting the good news, the good studies, the good factors. Not only because it's the truth, because good news needs to be as infectious and as contagious as the bad news. Lives depend upon it. Folks, thanks so much for listening. God bless you all. Till tomorrow. This has been another episode of the CR Podcast. Mm-hmm.